Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he said, as he has said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time as it has been said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself ceased from his works, as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to, his eyes, to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And then turning to Hebrews chapter 11, in the first six verses, Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, and, and, though, and through it, he being dead, still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith... It is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearts. In conjunction with that, I'd like to read to you from the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 7, on page 14 in the back of the Psalter Hymnal, questions 20, 21, and 22. I'll omit to 23 since we have already recited those words of the Apostles' Creed, but uh, Lord's Day 7, questions 20, 21, and 22. Are all men saved through Christ, just as all were lost through Adam? No. Only those are saved who by true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all his blessings. What is true faith? True faith is not only a knowledge and conviction, that everything God reveals in his word is true. It is also a deep-rooted assurance created in me by the Holy Spirit through the gospel that out of sheer grace earned for us by Christ, 
Not only others, but I too have had my sins forgiven, have been forever right with God, and have been granted salvation. What then must a Christian believe? Everything God promises us in the gospel, that gospel is summarized for us in the articles of our Christian faith, agreed beyond doubt and confessed throughout the world. Beloved of the Lord, our focus this evening is on faith, on true faith. The Catechism asks the question, what is true faith? And it uses that adjective true because not all faith is true faith. Jesus told a parable, the parable of the four soils. And in that parable, he speaks about those who receive the word of God with joy. But then trouble comes or persecution comes, or the cares of this world interfere, and the faith shrivels and dies. It shrivels and dies because the seed of the Word doesn't take root in the lives of the people, and because it doesn't take root, it bears no fruit. It is rootless, fruitless faith, not true faith. We can see that kind of faith in the generation of the Israelites who came out of Egypt. Hebrews chapter 4 speaks of that generation that Moses and Joshua led out of Egypt and how God swore in his wrath, they shall not enter my rest because although they heard the gospel, they heard the promises of God uh, of a great salvation, they didn't mix those, uh, what they heard, with faith. They didn't believe. They disobeyed. And you can see that if you go back and, and read the the, uh, the book of Exodus, you see that when Moses shows up in Egypt, having just been commissioned at the burning bush, uh, he goes back to Egypt and he announces to the Israelites what God has told him, that God has heard their cry and God is going to come down and rescue them and bring them into the land that had been promised to their forefather Abraham. And then Moses performs some miraculous signs to prove that God has spoken to him. Well, when Moses does that, the people rejoice. They're happy. And it says they believed and they worshipped. But just a few days later, Pharaoh issues an order that they're to make bricks without straw being provided to them. And the Israelites just turn on a dime, as it were, and are ready to stone Moses. They're ready to kill Moses. Their faith didn't last but a couple of days. And that establishes a pattern, a pattern where again and again, as God is bringing those people out of Egypt and into the, the promised land through the desert, uh, God does wonderful things for them, like he brings them through the Red Sea on dry land, and then they, they see Pharaoh's army wash up on the shore dead. And Miriam writes a song, and they all celebrate the great victory of God. 
But then just a very short time later, they come to a place where the water isn't drinkable and they're ready to complain and then kill Moses again. And uh, it happened again and again. They got tired of the food that they had. They didn't have enough vegetables and melons and things and cucumbers. And they were tired of, of the food that they had there. And, and so, again, they, as soon as there's trouble, as soon as there's some hardship, as soon as something just doesn't go the way they want it to and expect to, their faith evaporates because it never it never took root and it it didn't bear fruit it was it was a temporary faith it was a faith that rejoiced in in good things but it was fair weather faith as soon as the weather turned foul as soon as uh, god tested their faith uh, they failed the test and so we need to be concerned about faith and concerned that Faith is true faith. Each one of you should uh, ask yourself, you know, am I like those people that God swore in his wrath? They shall not enter my rest. They shall not enter the promised land, which was symbolic of, uh, of uh, eternal happiness, the uh, land of Palestine, promised to Abraham, uh, that uh, earthly kingdom of Israel uh, is uh, a sign, a symbol of God's eternal kingdom and God's uh, eternal salvation and not being allowed to enter that land means not being allowed to enter what it represents as well. And so we we have to be concerned. You know, Jesus warned that uh, on the last day there will be those who cry unto him, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? And didn't we do mighty works in your name? And he's going to say, depart from me, for I never knew you. Well, we want to uh, consider then what is true faith. And the first thing that the catechism asks is, are all people going to be saved? All uh, are lost through Adam. Will all be saved through Christ? And the answer is very short and succinct and simple and easy to understand. Are all going to be saved? No. That's it. No. All are not going to be saved. The Bible makes clear that although sin and corruption of human nature is universal, salvation is not universal. Now, this is not a popular answer. (laughs) In our age uh, where uh, relativism and pluralism uh, prevails, The conventional wisdom of the world says that, you know, if if you're sincere in your faith, it really doesn't matter what you believe. It only matters that you're sincere. It only matters that you mean well and that you try hard. If you mean well, you try hard. If you're sincere, then it doesn't matter what you believe in. It's just as long as you believe in something sincerely and are trying to be a good person, why then you can expect uh, to be uh, taken care of for all eternity in in God's heaven. Uh, That's the conventional wisdom of our world, that uh, sincerity counts more than the object of your faith. But the Bible makes clear that the catechism answer is correct. Uh, When the catechism says no, it's reflecting the truth that the Bible shows people not being saved. Jesus said, for example, to his disciples that uh, uh, none would be lost 
except one, Judas, the son of perdition. One man is going to be lost. We know for certain that that uh, he went to hell. Then uh, in Matthew 25, we we read uh, Jesus describing what it's going to be like when he comes at the parousia, the glorious second pers- the second coming of Christ in the flesh, uh, called the parousia, the glorious coming. Uh, he's going to have all humanity gathered before him. And he's going to divide humanity as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he's going to say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into eternal fire. Prepare for the devil and his angels. This is Christ speaking. Saying, this great mass of humanity on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. There's that passage in Matthew again uh, that I already referenced of... um, those who prophesied and did mighty works in Christ's name, Christ is going to say to them, Depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. The Apostle Paul in Second Thessalonians chapter two, uh, chapter 1, verses 8 to 10 says, He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of His power on the day when He comes to be glorified in His holy people. They're going to be shut out from the presence of the Lord. They're going to be punished with everlasting destruction. Again, this isn't some Old Testament passage about an angry God. This is the New Testament. This is the, the, the message of grace and salvation. It says not everybody will be saved. Now, why do we have a hard time with that? Why is that kind of great against us? Well, it grates against us because we still have this idea that that we're basically good and that we deserve to be saved. We have this idea that if God is able to save, then God ought to save. If he's able to save everyone, he ought to save everyone. He ought to treat everybody the same. That's only fair. But we forget that we're not dealing with innocent sufferers in need of assistance We're dealing with people who have chosen to disobey. The generation that came out of Egypt, they not only did not believe, they were disobedient, we read in the text. They were punished not merely for their lack of faith, but because they were disobedient to God. They rebelled against God again and again, and we have rebelled against God again and again. God is not a lifeguard whose duty it is to save anybody who might get in trouble in the pool. God is a judge, a righteous judge. We read Psalm 72, and one of the glories of our eternal king is that he rules righteously and justly and fairly. He doesn't take bribes. He doesn't overlook offenses to just say, oh, let it go, let bygones be bygones. He administers justice, and he will, in the end, administer final justice. You know, if there is no final justice, uh, no perfect justice, then that means that evil goes on forever. 
You know, one of the things that Christians are commanded to do is to love your enemies and bless those who persecute you and do good to those who despitefully use you. And one of the things that God says to motivate you to do that is vengeance is mine and I will repay. You know, anytime we see wickedness, there, there's something inside of us that says that ought to be punished. And there's the temptation that we want to take justice into our own hands and we want to punish the evil. That instinct is not bad, that, that evil needs to be punished. What's bad is the fact that we think we can do it. Human justice so often goes awry because we are sinners ourselves. All human judges are themselves sinners and, and biased and prejudiced and, and have a hard time overcoming that. Plus, it's impossible for us to see the hidden recesses of people's hearts to know what they are thinking and things that they did in secret. Uh, if they don't tell us, we can't find out what they did in secret. So justice, human justice is never perfect. And so God says, you relax, (laughs) love your enemies, leave justice to me. Well, if God isn't going to take justice in hand and administer final justice, then then again, we want to cry out and say, somebody's got to do it. Well, let God do it. He will do it. He will do it perfectly. He will do it completely. He will do it in such a way that no one will be able to say anything against it. And when he sends people to hell there, he's he's not going to be inflicting punishment on now repentant sinners, but he's going to simply give them what they want in their self-absorption and their self-centeredness. They don't want God, and so they won't have any part of him at all, not the least of his kindnesses. He's going to put them outside, away from him, away from his presence. That's really the essence of hell, is to be abandoned by God. That's what the wicked want, and that's their punishment. That's what they will get. Well, the Bible says not everyone is going to be saved. Who then will be saved? Well, the answer is only those are saved who by true faith are grafted into Christ and accept all his blessings. Grafted into Christ. That's an agricultural term. When I was pastor in Florida, I uh, learned a little bit about citrus trees. And I learned that uh, almost every type of citrus Oranges, uh, tangelos, limes, uh, lemons, uh, grapefruit, uh, uh, almost all of them were grafted onto the same kind of sour lemon rootstock. There was a sour lemon that had a really strong root system and provided good support for almost any kind of citrus. And so uh, they would take uh, branches from, uh, say, a navel orange or a, a Valencia orange, and graft it onto uh, the the root of a of a sour lemon, and and produce that way a, a good citrus tree. And of course, that's done with all kinds of uh, plants and trees. This grafting on of branches, and the Bible says that if you and I are to be saved, we have to be grafted into Christ. Christ is the perfect rootstock. 
Christ is the perfect man, the perfect man who is also fully God. And so we who are wild uh, uh, twigs and, and branches and so forth, we, we need to be grafted onto the true man. And when we are grafted onto him, then his life begins to flow in us. And we are able by his grace and his mercy and his strength to produce beautiful fruit to his honor and to his glory. Now, in grafting, that which is grafted is totally passive. A a branch doesn't have the power to put itself on to another uh, rootstock. Uh, It is wholly dependent upon a gardener to do that. And so we also are wholly dependent upon God to graft us into Christ. Uh, It is a work of sovereign grace where he is in complete control. But the Catechism also goes on to say that that we have to be grafted into Christ and accept all his blessings. Once we are grafted into Christ and his life begins to course through our lives and give us strength, and it is our duty to exercise faith. Earlier today, we considered the matter of receiving Christ and receiving his word and receiving his witness, which means believing him and putting our faith in him. Those who are saved are saved by being grafted into Christ, being born again, given new life by coming into contact with the the power, the resurrection power of the life of Jesus Christ. And then, having received that life, uh, trusting him, believing him, and uh, honoring him with our lives. Uh, Jesus is uh, the one who is able to give us all that we stand in need of. Uh, Believers are assured uh, that, uh, that they have been grafted into Christ by baptism, the sign and seal that the Father has made a covenant with us and the Son has washed us and that the Spirit is working in us. However, we must not presume on the basis of the covenant alone that we are saved. In both John 15 and Romans 11, uh, we read about branches that were attached that are dead and now must be cut off and thrown into fire. Jesus warns his disciples to remain in him. And Paul in Romans 11 warns the church members that they will be cut off if they don't continue in the faith. The difference between dead branches and a live branch is faith. Both Jesus and Paul underscore what our catechism teaches, that we are saved through faith alone. Don't presume to be grafted into Christ and the recipient of all his benefits unless you are looking to Jesus Christ in faith. Judas Iscariot was one of the twelve. He accompanied Jesus for three years. He saw all Jesus' miracles. He heard all Jesus' teaching, but he did not believe, and he was lost. King Agrippa was well acquainted with all of the Old Testament, and he knew about the life of Jesus. But when Paul stood before him, Agrippa was not a Christian because Agrippa did not believe. All of Abraham's descendants were in the covenant. But that generation that came out of Egypt who were baptized in the sea and the cloud, who ate the bread of heaven, who drank from the water, uh, drank water from the rock that was Christ, 
That generation did not enter the promised land because when they heard the gospel, they did not believe. They did not have faith. So God swore they would never enter into his promised land. In Romans 10, Paul says his heart's desire for Israel is that they might be saved. And, uh, but they weren't. And they weren't saved because they didn't believe. Only those who are united to Christ by faith, grafted into him and by faith accept his benefits, only they are saved. Now, the catechism asks the important question, what is true faith? And it gives a threefold response. Faith is knowledge, faith is conviction, and faith is assurance. Faith is knowledge, knowledge of everything that God reveals in his word. Faith has to have something to hold on to, and it holds on to what God has revealed, what God has made known. Everything God promises in the gospel, the good news is to be believed. The promise of the gospel really is, is, is all of scripture, because from, from the very beginning, God is showing us that he has wonderful things in store for us, both from the creation and then his response to the fall, the whole history of redemption through the patriarchs and the judges and the kings and the prophets through the New Testament. God is working a great salvation for his people, and we need to know that. We can't just uh, have uh, faith in anything or what our faith in ourselves or whatever, but rather it's important that our faith is in what God has revealed. You who are parents of children have promised when you brought those children for baptism, you have promised to teach your children and to cause them to be instructed. You can't create faith in their hearts. But the Holy Spirit will use what you teach them. Use the Word to create faith. And so teach them the Word. But not only is faith uh, built upon a foundation of knowledge, it's built on on the conviction that, that the Word of God is true. When the Spirit begins to work through the Word, we begin to say, yes, yes, that's right. When the Bible says, I'm a sinner, uh, I begin to, to realize that, and I, I, I measure myself against the law. The Apostle Paul talks about uh, the Tenth Commandment. When, when, he, when he read the law, it, it, it cut him to the heart. It was sharper than a two-edged sword, as we read uh, uh, from uh, Hebrews 4. It, it, it cut him down, and he, he began to realize, yes, uh, there's sin in my heart. There's something at work in me that is, that is wicked and evil. What it says about me is true. And then we also begin to become convinced that what it says about Christ is true. You know, uh, there is plenty of historical evidence that the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were all written well before A.D. 70. They were written during the lifetime of the apostles. They were written during the lifetime of thousands of witnesses to the ministry of Jesus. And these four Gospels, as well as Paul's letters, uh, which attested to many of the same facts, uh, they were circulated throughout all the, the Roman Empire. And there were plenty, there were thousands of people who could have said, you know, 
I was there when Jesus came to my town, and he never did any of these things that are written in these books. This is all fabrication. This is all lie. There were thousands of people, literally thousands of people, who could have contradicted them. But every historical witness outside of Scripture that we have affirms that Jesus did the things that are described in the Bible. There were no people who came forth and said, this is all a lie. There's also the case that when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, the Jews went to the Romans and said, you know, the body's gone. And uh, they said, well... Tell everybody that the disciples came while you were sleeping and stole the body. I just think for a moment, was that if that were true, if that were true, that the disciples came and stole the body, would the disciples then start a religion that says he's not dead, he's alive, and we saw him alive? Well, it's possible that 12 people could make a Passover plot to conspire together to create this religion based on a lie. But really, what, what do you think would have happened when Herod arrested the Apostle James and put him to death? What would the rest of the apostles do at that point? Are we going to continue to pretend that Jesus is alive if it's already crossed James' his life and, and Peter gets arrested next and uh, he's going to be put to death next as far as the, they know. What do they do? They just say, we better come clean. We better fess up. We better tell everybody, no, uh, we were lying. Uh, we stole his body. No. And it wasn't just the 12 who stuck to their story, though it cost them their lives. We know that there were over 500 witnesses, many of whom also were martyred for the faith. There's all kinds of historical evidence that the tomb is empty because Christ is alive. And we become convinced when we study the scriptures that that what it says is true. Faith is knowledge of what God has revealed in his word. And it is the conviction that this is true, that, that it makes sense, that it, it's true what it says about me and what it says about Christ, what it says about God. These things all make sense. It's, it's rational to believe that, that an infinite God could create uh, as he did and control all that he has done and, and that the, the design that we see in nature the design that we see in our own bodies, the way all our systems work together and the way all the systems of of the earth work together, the idea that this should come from chaos, from nothing, with no God, that's illogical. It, It makes far more sense to believe that indeed these things are created by an infinite God who stands above and outside of his creation. And so we we become to know it, and we become convinced that it's true. But then faith is one more thing. It is that assurance, that assurance created in me by the Holy Spirit through the gospel, not through some mystical means, but through the gospel, that out of sheer grace earned for us by Christ, not others, not only others, but I too have had my sins forgiven, have been forever right with God, and have been granted salvation. Now, the Spirit works, and so this is a supernatural work. 
a supernatural work of the Spirit, but working through ordinary means, working through the Word, and also confirming it through the sacraments, working through the Word and confirming it through the sacraments, that, that I also have had my sins forgiven. This is an assurance that God gives to us, that He loves us, that He cares for us, and that nothing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God. If you have that assurance, you have it because the Holy Spirit has created it in your hearts. Now, that doesn't mean that there, there aren't sometimes doubts and fears raised uh, in our hearts and in our minds. Uh, wherever the Spirit is doing His work, Satan is at work also to try to destroy faith. And uh, Satan is very content to leave uh, people who believe in Buddha or uh, far more people who believe in themselves to leave them with no doubts and no fears. Uh, uh, You believe in yourself? Fine, says Satan. I'll leave you alone. You believe in Jesus? I'm going to mount an attack against you. Uh, And therefore we have to arm ourselves with all the armor of God and continually come back to the Word so that the Spirit may continually remind us and encourage us. That's why we we meet uh, not once but twice on the Lord's Day and why uh, we should have daily devotions and daily prayer is because Satan is at work to tear down whatever God is building. Every good thing that, that God is doing, Satan is trying to counter it. But by the grace of God... God is more powerful than Satan, and this is your victory, your faith. God is working in you through the Spirit, by the Word, and He will strengthen your faith even in trying times, and especially in trying times. He will strengthen your faith and encourage you and bring you closer to Himself. The Catechism concludes with the statement, What do we need to believe? What then must a Christian believe? And the answer is pretty simple. Everything. (laughs) You need to believe everything that God has revealed. Uh, That doesn't mean that, that I understand everything that God has revealed. I don't understand everything. I've been studying it. I've been studying it in the original languages for the last uh, 45 years. And I, I still don't know it all, (laughs) but I'm still learning. And uh, that's the way it should be. There's infinite riches in the Bible. No one in this lifetime will ever fathom them all and, and master it all. But we are predisposed, knowing that this is God's Word, to say, although I don't understand everything, I believe what God says to be true, and I will continue to uh, root my life uh, in His Word to be a, uh, a, a student of the Scriptures Uh, whether called to be a minister or called to be a farmer, called to be a a pharmacist or a doctor or a lawyer or a housewife, a student, whatever God has called you to be, uh, we are to uh, put our roots deep into the Word of God because it is through His Word that the Spirit works in our hearts to give us that blessed assurance that our sins are forgiven. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of true faith. We pray that we would not be like those who hear the Word of God with joy, but then when times of testing come, grumble and complain and uh, disobey. We pray instead that we may be strengthened in faith in times of testing, 
and uh, that our faith may redound more and more to your praise and honor and glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us respond to God's word by singing, When peace like a river attendeth thy way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Number 445, all four stanzas.